This week, my wife brought our youngest child, my daughter Caroline, back to college for her senior year. It is my last kid's last year in college, which is in, in some ways very sad for me, right? Kind of if I think about it, I could get emotional about that. And yet at the same time, it is my last kid's last year of college tuition, which provides for me a joy nearly unspeakable. <laughs> 32 semesters of college tuition. And the finish line is now in sight. We will be able to breathe again at the Eisman House. And so, um, Joan was away this week with Caroline taking her back, and I was home all by myself, except for my dog Moose and my mother-in-law's cat. I was home for the first time that I can remember for three nights in a row. Can't remember by myself. The last time I was the only human in the house for three straight nights. And so that meant, at least in terms of, of meals, right, dinner, the only person I had to worry about was me and what I was going to be eating over, over those days. My culinary skills, my children will tell you, are severely limited. There is only so much you can do with scrambled eggs and grilled cheese. So uh, I decided that since I was, it was just me, I was going to try to save some money. I was going to eat what was left over in the fridge uh, for the week rather than spend any money. And so we had had the kids over for a, uh, a, a barbecue on Sunday before Joan left. And so we had, you know, uh, essentially what you have left over at barbecues. We had a bunch of hamburgers and hot dogs primarily. And so I'm here to tell you that I had hamburgers and hot dogs for every single meal while Joan was gone. In fact, in order to finish the hot dogs before they went bad, even Moose had hot dogs one night for dinner. He was very excited. One night, the last night of my bachelorhood, um, which is kind of strange as I, as I think about this now. Most men, given this singular last night of the bachelorhood, might do a lot of different things. I took my mom out for dinner. Um, I called her up and said, hey, you know, kind of I blew through all the hamburgers and hot dogs. You want to go out? And so uh, I took her out for dinner, and I began to peruse the menu at Applebee's. That's right, Applebee's, there's nothing too good for my mom. And as I perused the Applebee's menu, you know what looked really good to me? A hamburger. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I can't get, I mean, I, I just, I'd be eating up one hamburger, two hot dogs every meal. That was my meal, blowing through these hamburgers. I'm like, I can't get another, another hamburger. It's not good for me. Specifically, right, for me, it's not good for my heart. As an Eisman, I come from a long line of people that have bad hearts. In fact, my father, who, who some of you know, about a year and a half ago, he had a major heart attack. My father is one of the few, he might be the only Eisman male that has lived past his early 60s. And so I thought to myself, in the booth with my mom, who, by the way, ordered a hamburger. <laughs> I thought to myself, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect my heart in this moment, given these choices, and I will go with the Fiesta Lime Chicken, which is akin to eating cardboard. <laughs> Next morning, I got up after sleeping with Moose for the third night in a row, and I made a, a pretty interesting observation about myself. I, I, I came down in the morning and I did what I usually do. I prepared myself my morning pill cocktail. I, uh, I had a statin to prevent plaque from building up in my heart. I took my blood pressure medication to help my heart's workload. And then I took a baby aspirin to thin my blood just a little bit to prevent blood clots in my heart. And then at lunch, I went to the gym to exercise. Why? 
Not because I like it. Oftentimes, I sit in the parking lot for 20 minutes trying to get myself to go in. But I do it because no Eisman male has actually lived past his early 60s. And I thought, I've got to exercise and strengthen my heart. I do these things every single day. Most of them, I don't even think about. I pop that medication without much thought. I spend a lot of time, a lot of money, those pills aren't cheap, energy, worry, trying to ensure the health of my heart. Why? Simple. I want to I wanna live. I, I want to keep living. We're in a summer series called Modern Problems, right? Modern Problems and, and Ancient Answers. We're studying one, one of the so-called wisdom books in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, written some 3,000 years ago by Israel's King Solomon. He was King David, son of David and Goliath fame. Solomon, among the ancients, has always been considered, widely considered, the wisest man to have ever lived. And in this book of wisdom, what Solomon is doing, the way he writes the book, is that he's passing along to his son that he loves all that he knows about this life. How to live life in this world. How to do it successfully. How not to screw everything up. And time and time again, he goes over a problem that could derail the life of his son, and then he offers his son his wisdom regarding that problem. Now, when I named the series, right, Ancient, um, uh, excuse me, Modern Problems, Ancient Answers, when I named it, it didn't occur to me, as I've been working through this, that so many of the problems we believe to be problems of our modern era aren't. The problems that we deal with today were actually, as you read Proverbs, the exact same problems that Solomon was, he was literally writing his son about the things you and I are dealing with. And again, as I was reading it this week, I, I became, I was reminded uh, of a list of problems in the scripture that Jesus actually spoke about in the world. Matthew, who is one of Jesus' disciples, he, he was a first-hand eyewitness to this, and Matthew wrote down what Jesus said. Uh, a first-hand account of the things that Jesus said were plaguing mankind. Here's what, wh here's what they were. They were murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. He said that these are the things that defile a person. Jesus laid out what actually are still very modern problems 2,000 years ago. The funny thing about this is Solomon actually dealt with each and every one of those same problems a thousand years before that. Literally, each and every one of those problems, oftentimes more than once Solomon would address them. But I, I'm going to show you, Solomon deals with everything Jesus said was a, was a problem that, that, that screws us up, that defiles us. Here they are in the same order Jesus gave them. Uh, murder, Proverbs 28. And again, there's multiple Proverbs about each of these problems, but just to show you, they're all in here. Anyone tormented by the guilt, the guilt of murder will seek refuge in the grave. Let no one hold them back. Adultery. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Whoever does so destroys himself. Sexual immorality, a huge issue in Proverbs, right? Which should make sense if you think about it. It's a father saying to his son, hey, I want to point out to you things that could really make a mess of your life, right? In fact, chapters 5 through 7 are almost entirely dedicated to the issue. Here's just a quick pa passage from chapter 7 dealing with sexual temptation. Now then, my son, listen to me. Pay attention for, to what I say. Do not let your heart turn to her ways. This is the adulterous woman. Or stray into her paths. Many are the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. 
You can find every one of the problems Jesus wrote down. There's theft. Ill-gotten treasures have no lasting value, but righteousness delivers from death. There's false testimony. This is what Jesus said, right? He said false testimony is an issue. Solomon wrote, a false witness will not go unpunished, and whoever, and whoever pours out lies will perish. And to close it out, in the order that Jesus presented the problems, slander, the Lord detests lying lips, but he delights in people who are trustworthy. Societal ills, right? Uh, cultural issues. 3,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, and today, this morning, all of the same things that you and I are struggling with in our world. Solomon, again, purported to be the wisest guy who have ever lived. He goes over these problems and lots, of the, lots more, and he goes over them over and over again. We could study each one of them and what Solomon's wisdom is on each one of those things. In fact, we probably should. But he says a lot about them. We'd be here until next summer, right? But there's this one teaching that Solomon gives to his son about all of these problems that kind of encompasses, if not supersedes, his teaching on all of these not-so-modern problems that he knows can shipwreck his son's life, your life. In fact, if you're going to remember anything from this series, from all of the things that Solomon warns of and muses over, there is this one thing that he says is more important than all of the other things. I'm, I'm going to show it to you. It's in chapter 4. I want you to hear the urgency with which he's writing to his son about these issues. I want you to feel it, if you can. He goes, listen, my son, to a father's instruction. Pay attention and gain understanding. I give you sound learning, so do not forsake my teaching. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget my words or turn away from them. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom, though it costs you all that you have. Get understanding. Listen, my son, accept what I'm saying. In the years of your life will be many. I instruct you in the way of wisdom, and I'm leading you along straight paths. When you walk, your steps won't be hampered. When you run, you won't stumble. Hold on to instruction. Do not let it go. Guard it well, he says, for it's your life. Really powerful words, right? From a father to his son. I hope you can hear Solomon like so concerned about his son. And then he says this, my son, pay attention to what I say and turn your ear towards my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart for their life to those who find them and health to one's whole body. Above all else, above all else, which I think is worthy of a pause, right? Almost if you buy into that this is the smartest man who has ever lived, who asked God for wisdom and God gave it to him. Above all else, he said, shouldn't we almost gasp at that? Holy smokes, above all else? Right? He's pouring out uh, uh, all wisdom about all things. You can almost pick a problem. He deals with it. And then in this moment, when, it, when he's kind of getting passionate about his son's life, he says, son, one last thing. Above all else, above all of the things I've warned you about, all of the things I've taught you, all the things I've spoken about, Above even the pursuit of wisdom itself, there is one thing that supersedes everything. Which again, if you buy into it, wouldn't what he says next, wouldn't what comes next, shouldn't it be written like, if this is true, shouldn't it be written everywhere, like everywhere? Above all else, what? I mean, shouldn't this be 
embroidered on the decorative pillow in every Christian and Jewish home? Shouldn't this be the thing that really winds up on your fridge or that you, that you tattoo on your arm? Above all else? I mean, what could possibly, what could possibly be so important that it's above all of these other things? Greater than wisdom itself. Above all else, what? See, if, if you believe in the, the, the scriptures or the veracity of the historical Solomon, right now, right, if you really, okay, think about this. If you really believe Solomon, who historically existed, is the wisest man who ever lived, and he says to you this morning, oh, by the way, and above all else, wouldn't you be willing to get your checkbook out to go, hold on, I'll write a check to hear these words. They're that important. I'm not, I'm not going to, I can't leave until I hear it, right? What could be so foundational? What could be so important? Above all else, guard your heart. Guard your heart. That's it, right? Which you've been, if you've been around Christianity for, for any amount of time, You've probably heard this verse before. It's, it's one of those things that Christians say each other when we speak our native tongue of Christianese, right? It, it's maybe one of the greatest Christian platitudes that we just kind of spout out all the time. Christian guys say it to each other. You know, for some reason it usually has to do with girls. Guard your heart, brother. Christian women say it to each other. For some reason it usually has to do with men. Honey, make sure you guard your heart. It just rolls off the lips, right? But here's the thing, right? You have any idea what that means? Like, be honest, what, what the heck does that mean? Guard your heart? I mean, if this is the thing that we're supposed to do all, uh, above every other thing, above all else, if this is the most important thing, wh why does nobody ever ask that question? What does that mean? See, I love people when they go, what does that mean? I don't know what that means, dude. What does it mean? I mean, with, with my statins and my diet and my blood pressure medication and my exercising, I'm guarding my heart right now. Is that what he means? I mean, no, right? You know that's not what he means. But if it's that important, right, then what does he mean? How should I actually do it? And shouldn't I, shouldn't I, this is really my fundamental thought for today, Shouldn't I, and why aren't I, at least as dedicated to guarding this heart as I am to my physical heart? I put lots and lots of time and energy and resources and worry into guarding my physical heart because I want to live. But the truth is, I put, can I just be honest with you? It never occurs to me. I don't think about it regularly. I sat down with my mom, and the first thought was, I can't have a hamburger. Why? Because of my heart. When's the last time you said, you know what? i got to be careful here because i got to guard my heart. When's the last time you thought, oh, you know, I gotta, this is so important. Above all else, i got to do this. So let's get at it. When the writers of the book of the Bible speak of the heart, obviously, right, they're not speaking of your physical heart. The, the ancients knew there was a physical heart. It was, they knew that, that your heart that was beating in your chest was fundamental to life. There's actually even a mention in the Bible of somebody having a heart attack in the scriptures. In, in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, there's a, a writing about a man named Naval whose, quote, heart died inside of him and he became like stone. 
So it's not like they were primitive and they just didn't get it, right? That's not what the Bible was speaking of. It wasn't speaking of a physical heart. In Hebrew, in which the Old Testament was translated, right, into modern English, the heart, the word in Hebrew there is the heart lavav. In its shortened form, often just the word lev. And so when the writers of the scripture would write the word lev and refer to it as the heart, what I want you to understand is it has such deep, wide, profound, and vast meaning it's almost hard to wrap your arms around and comprehend it. It's such a comprehensive word. Guard your heart. Now, when you and I read the heart in the Bible or in everyday life, right, when it's not spoken to mean the physical muscle, what do we think it means to guard your heart? We tend to think that the heart, what is the heart? It's kind of the seat of our emotions. That's where we feel things is in our heart. Yes, that's what the writers of the scripture would tell you. But they would also say it, it's much more than simply that. It, it's a much bigger topic. The Bible says that our thinking comes from the heart. Solomon would write later on in Proverbs, for as a man thinks in his heart, so he is. But it's even more than that. Our heart, the scriptures say, is where we do our willing, where we create our plans, our heart is where we make our decisions. Solomon would write in Proverbs 16, to humans belong the plans of the heart. The heart has plans. The heart is used as a metaphor for the seat of our most basic orientation, our deepest commitments. Our heart is the, is the place where what we trust the most in rests. It rests in your heart. Solomon tells his son in, in Proverbs 23, My son, give me your heart and let your eyes delight in my ways. Our heart is what we, we most love. It's what, it, our heart is, is, is what we most hope in, what we most treasure. Our heart is what captures our imagination. The scriptures, did you know? The scriptures indicate that every heart has an inclination. It's inclined towards something. It's directed towards something. And the direction of the heart, according to the, the scriptures, over and over, it controls everything. Our thinking, our feeling, our decisions, our actions. What we most love, the things that we find reasonable and desirable and doable, they all flow out of what we cherish most in our heart. Your heart, the Bible says, controls everything about you. I heard it put this way this week. The heart is seat of your most fundamental commitments, hopes, and trusts. It's where you hold the beliefs about the things that, listen now, it's where you hold the beliefs about the things that you must have to receive life joyfully. Your heart is the place where, where you think things like, if I have that, then my life is good. It has meaning. I'll be happy. What your heart chooses to believe, it affects everything else. What your heart chooses, for example, the mind perceives and finds reasonable. What the heart chooses, the emotions desire and find beautiful. What your heart chooses, the will does and finds practical. When you understand what the Bible is talking about, when it speaks of the heart, then the answer to the question of what, why is this teaching about the heart so important, it flows naturally which it did for Solomon, because here's how that sentence ended. He said, listen, son, he's speaking to his son. I know I've been teaching you all these things, 
But listen, above all of these teachings, above all of it, guard your heart. Why? Because everything you do, everything that you do, let me repeat it one more time. Everything you do flows from your heart. Your wise decisions, your foolish decisions. Every good and bad thing, every right and wrong action, every righteous or evil act, everything. Why did Hitler do what Hitler did? Where did it come from? His heart. Why did Mother Teresa do what Mother Teresa did? Where did it come from? Her heart. It all flows out of the heart. Every single thing that happens, you have to, therefore, Solomon says, son, you have to understand, you got to guard your heart. And I care for it so little. I pop my pills every day so that I might live, but I ignore the heart that could actually give me life. Super interesting story about Jesus in regards to our hearts. Again, recorded by that same Matthew. He was, Jesus is being confronted by the Pharisees, the, the super religious rulers, leaders of the day, about his disciples because they were no longer partaking in what had become a religious tradition for the Jews, which was a ceremonial washing of their hands. Um, b before they ate. And so the, the Pharisees were quite upset about this, and they were trying to trip Jesus up, up about it, right? And so Jesus confronts them about their own hypocrisy regarding the laws of God and the things they do and they don't do because they're hypocrites regarding their religious traditions and, and the laws of Moses. But then Matthew writes this. After he deals with the Pharisees, Jesus now turns his attention to the crowds, just the people around Jesus called the crowd to him. Come here, come here, come here. I want you guys to listen. Come here, come here, come here, Jesus says. Come on, come over. I want you to listen and understand because you're confused. What goes into somebody's mouth, because remember, they were worried about like what they were eating, how they were washing their hands. What goes into somebody's mouth does not defile them. But what comes out of their mouth is what defiles them. And then the disciples came to him and asked, uh, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? I always like that. Jesus is trying to teach them about what defiles them before God. And the disciples are like, you know, I'm sure if you were aware, you really ticked the Pharisees off earlier. Peter then goes, could you explain this to us? I, I, I don't get it. And I love Jesus' answer. It's just so honest. Are you still so dull, Jesus says to them? Which is kind of rough, right? This is funny. This is why you should read your Bible. Are you still so simple? Are you, Peter, are you really this dumb? Are you guys this dumb? Like I've been going over this over and over and over again, right? And you still don't get it, do you? And so he goes on. He goes, look, I'll explain it again. By the way, this is very hard for us to understand. You'll see in a second. He goes, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body, right? He's kind of joking around here. It's a little bit of physical, like, Body 101, right? It's a, it's a poop joke, right? <laughs> but, right, he goes, listen, you're worried about, do you realize what you're worried about? You're worried about putting something in that you poop out. Are you really that dumb? But the things that come out of a person's mouth, as opposed to other areas, but the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart. 
and these things defile them. And then, this is the context for that problem, list of problems I gave you earlier. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Are you still so simple? Uh, let me modernize the problem, the teaching for us. Are we still so dull that we think our problem is literally merely just a behavioral modification problem? Just, you know, just stop doing that. Start doing these things, stop doing that thing. Isn't that the way Christianity has often been explained? Oh, it's, you know, it's the things you do and you shouldn't do. That's what it is. It's a, a list of rights and wrongs. For our entire lives, most of us, what do we teach our children? Here's, what, here's the things that are good. Here's the things that are bad. This is what will make you a good person. This is what will make you a bad person. We've been, been encouraged over and over to monitor our behavior. But if Jesus is right, you would imagine he might be, guarding our hearts might be more important than monitoring our behavior. Is the Bible filled with teaching related to behavior? Of course it is. But at the same time, Jesus and Solomon, two pretty bright guys, right? Could we agree on that? They both instruct us to get into the habit of paying attention to what's swirling around on your inside because what's on the inside doesn't stay on the inside. Our hearts direct our behavior. Your heart directs everything you're going to do. Solomon said, as a man thinketh in his heart, so he is. Ralph Waldo Emerson modernized the thought this way. Maybe you, you've heard this. It's really good. Sow a thought, reap a deed. Sow a deed, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. I don't know if you and I understand how foundational, how important, how life-giving or death-bringing, how powerful the heart is until you remember one simple fact. Do you remember, some of you that are, that are Bible people, according to Genesis, this, this first book in the Bible, this book of origins, Genesis tells the story of Noah and the flood, right? God essentially, through this flood, wiping out all of humanity, what could have been so wrong with humankind that God, this good and loving God, what could have been so dangerous for the future of the world that God said, I have to, I have to start over again? Does anybody remember what was wrong? The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The thoughts of the heart. It's no wonder then, you see it over and over in the Gospels, that Jesus is so concerned about your heart. Some of you know the story, uh, 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 what God said to Samuel. Do not consider Samuel looking for a king. Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. No wonder the prophets said the goal of salvation wasn't compliance with the law, but having the laws written on your heart. Is it any wonder that Jesus re reiterates the call of the Old Testament writers saying the greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart? You can't get away from this. 
but you never and I never think about it. What do you do for your heart? Are you guarding your heart? Who formed it? What do you believe in it? What is your heart making you do right now? Every day, you get up and you follow it. Your heart. Now, I, I hope I've convinced you how important it is, but then it leads me to ask you the question I asked myself this week. What am I doing to guard my heart? Because I spare no expense, no amount of time and effort. I bypass things that I want to eat just to guard my physical heart. I think about my physical heart all the time. I don't want to die. At least not yet. But what do I do to guard my biblical heart? Have you given any thought, any time, any money, any worry, any effort to guard your spiritual heart so that you might not just live, but you might find life? If your answer is like mine, honestly, I don't really think about it too much, then I encourage you to listen to what Solomon said regarding how his son should guard his heart. It was the very next verse. He said, son... Keep, guard your heart because out of it everything flows. And then he says, keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. And give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Don't turn to the left. Don't turn to the right. But keep your foot from evil. Summarized quickly, here's what he told him. Son, there's two things or three things you need to do to guard your heart. You need to govern your speech you need to guard your sight, and you need to guide your steps. You need to govern your speech, guard your sight, and guide your steps. Keep your mouth free of perversity. Keep corrupt talk far from your lips. The consistent message over and over in the, by the authors of the scriptures is that words reveal what is in your heart. Matt, in Matthew, again, Jesus says the mouth speaks, the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Jesus' brother James, nobody spoke more about the power of words than James, right? He says, James says that your heart is a rudder because it guides your life. He calls your heart a fire because it's dangerous when it's used incorrectly. And he calls our words a well that reveals what, li that reveals what lies beneath the surface. I think Solomon dresses our words, how powerful they were, right? How do, how do our words guard our heart? Well, the first reason is because words, as for believers, are a test. Not for you to judge others with. But it's the simplest test to see the condition of your own heart. What are the things that come out of your mouths? Do they not reveal what's in your soul? He's also suggesting that we can fill our, our hearts and our souls with other things, good things, by the training of our tongue. Two thoughts on this. Your words to other people are powerful beyond what you can understand. Here, here's a question. How did what's in your heart right now, right, what drives you, what motivates you, what you believe you have to have in order to, to be successful, in order to have a good life, how did what's in your heart right now get there? Why does it believe what it believes that makes you do what you do? The answer is often the words of others. So especially important for parents in the room today. I, I was talking about my, to, this about Joan just sharing what, what I was learning about. And I said to her, now my kids are grown, so I'm too late for me. But I think mom and dads are the single greatest contributors to the condition of their children's hearts. 
and perhaps the single greatest tool for good or bad that you have in shaping the heart of your child is your words, what you say to them, about them, and about others. Because your words, your words communicate, according to Scripture, your heart, your values, and they shape then your kid's heart's and his values, and eventually his actions. This is why, and, and how, how so often, the sins of the father are passed from generation to generation. How? On words that shape hearts. How many men, grown men, are living their lives out right now, trying, the over, trying to overcome the words of doubt or disdain from their dads? How many of you? Almost every man I know, it doesn't matter, matter how old he is, there's still something in him that's gone, why do you do what you do? Why do you work so hard? Why? Still trying to impress my dad. Fathers, every time you say something like, well, why don't you act like a man or be a man about it? You are sending a message to a young man's heart. Well, then this is what I must be to be a man. This is how I, I have to act to be a man. This is, this is how I'll be valued as a man if I do this, these things. These are what are important for men to do. I, I love my dad. We have a great relationship. My dad actually went in the hospital yesterday. I'm going to go see him after, after church today, pray for my dad. He, he's 81 years old, and he's not in great shape. My dad is, I see him every week. I love him to death. I can tell you almost every negative word he ever said to me. How many of you can do that with your dad? Every word he said that shaped your heart. Unintentional. Every one of them was unintentional. But things about how I measure up, how, I was, how a man is valued, how a man should act. They leave, these words leave such impacts on our hearts and the hearts of our children because your child has no guarded heart. They're just consumers, right? They're what we talked about the last few weeks, this concept of being a naive fool, a simple fool. They just take it in. How many of our little girls have been raised to believe that their value is in their beauty? How many times have we, what is the first thing we say to a little girl when she comes down the stairs and she's got an outfit on? What's the first thing you say? You're so, look how pretty you are. Words shaping the heart. How many young ladies have shipwrecked their lives trying to convince themselves that somebody finds them beautiful or attractive? In, in Menham in Chester, New Jersey, how many of our kids, because of our words, have had their hearts conditioned to believe that success is tied to either their academic achievement or their sports accomplishments? We do it subtly, right? I realized I was doing it with my kids because I would always tell them, I don't care about sports. Academics is the most important thing. I don't care about sports. Academics is the most important thing. Whenever they called me and to catch up on what was going on at college or whatever, what was the first thing I asked them about? Sports. What did you do at practice today? When's the race? How are you going to do? We do it subtly, right? When we keep asking about their grades, how... How passionate we are about their play versus anything else they're involved in. How, how many of us, serious question, have any of us, I never did. If you're a parent, have you ever thought about teaching your child to guard his heart? This is above all else. It's the most important thing. Has any parent said, listen, above all else, here's what my goal is. My goal is to make sure I teach my children how to guard their heart. 
No. Above all else. Moms, dads, I'm a new grandpa. I was thinking about this. If this is important, as Solomon says, above all else, above sports, above academics, maybe a new series of questions to help train our kids is needed. Questions like, did anybody hurt your feelings today? Are you mad at anybody? What are you worried about? Anybody break a promise to you today? Is there anything that, that you want to tell me, but you don't feel like you can? Can you imagine? Your words are not just powerful in the lives of others, though. Your words, your self-talk, we were just talking about this in the back this morning, your self-talk has powerful impacts on your own heart. The words you speak to yourself, that little voice in your head that says things over and over again. And you and I do it. I do it all the time, right? I speak them out loud sometimes. Oh, I'm so stupid. Oh, of course it didn't work out for me. Nothing ever works out for me. Well, I guess I deserve it. I don't know what your voice is telling you. The common words are you're too fat, you're too skinny, you're not successful enough. You know, everyone thinks you're a loser. When you keep speaking that, those words, that voice shapes your heart, and your heart controls everything you do. You're either going to spend your life believing those words, or you're going to spend your life trying to, to disprove those words. But either way, when they get into your heart, they control you. Number one, govern your speech. Number two, guard your sight. Let your eyes look straight ahead. Fix your gaze directly before you. If our words reveal what's in our soul, our eyes are the main way things get there. Jesus described it famously this way, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body is going to be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Do you ever take into consideration what you're looking at, what you're bringing in? What, what you're filling your heart with, what your focus is on, because it'll end up consuming you. You have to be careful what you focus on. If something catches your eye and you become convinced that you'll be happy if you could just get that, right? You'll be consumed by it until you obtain it. If you focus on something that causes you fear, right? You're going to become consumed by it and you become just an anxious wreck. If you notice something in somebody that just drives you nuts, frustrates you, and you choose to focus on it, you become consumed with, with animosity or hatred. Consistently in the scriptures, fix your eyes somewhere else. Paul said to Colossians, set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth. He told the Philippians, finally, brother, brothers, whatever is true, honorable, right? Whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, if there is anything of excellence, if anything is worthy of praise, dwell on these things. What are you regularly watching, regularly listening to, taking in? John Bunyan, who wrote famous, most famous book is a, a book called Pilgrim's Progress. He wrote another book called The Holy War. This is great. He pictures the heart as a city called Mansoul. And in the allegory, Access to the city of Mansoul is, is obtained through five gates. There's the eye gate, one of the most significant gates. The ear gate, where the enemy of Mansoul, somebody called Diabolus, first attacks the city through his ear, through the ears. There's the mouth gate, the feel gate, which is weakly guarded, and the nose gate. 
these entry points, quote, could never be opened or forced but, uh, but by the will. The only way to get them is by the will and the leave of those who are within. Mr. Godly Fear is in charge of the gatekeeping, and all of Diabolus' attacks on Mansoul are repelled as long as Godly Fear is the gatekeeper. What if you and I, can you imagine, what if for one day I was as concerned with what I'm bringing in through my eyes and my ears into my spiritual heart as I am with what my mouth, my physical mouth is bringing to my physical heart? Could you imagine the difference in in your life if you really believe that? And finally, Give careful thought to the paths for your feet and be steadfast in all your ways. Don't turn to the right or the left. Keep your feet free from evil. Guide your steps. This is the last line of defense. The truth is that your words and your eyes, because of their impact on your heart, they will start your feet moving in a certain direction. They will begin a journey for you. But here Solomon words his son and us, hey, stop and look where you're going. Where is this path leading you to? Is it to where you want to be? Is it to the you you want to be or become? The life you want to live? The eternity eternity you want uh, to enjoy? Solomon's going, son, listen, don't just float through life. Give careful thought to the paths of your feet. Look at where you're going. How? Well, the psalmist said this. I I think this is pretty, pretty, pretty cute, pretty cool. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let let me not wander from your commandments. I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. How do you keep your way straight? How do you evaluate the path you're on, right? Here's what Solomon said to his son. Same chapter, chapter 4. My son, pay attention to what I'm telling you. Turn your ear to my words. Don't let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life. To those who find them. And health to one's whole body. Pay attention to my words, Solomon says to his son. Turn your ear to them. Keep your eye on them. But it was more, more than just memorizing it. It's not just that they might bring life if you memorize it. Solomon is saying, I don't know what's going on around me, but. (laughs) Solomon is saying that they are life. What he's telling his son is, son, you don't need more advice, you don't need more words, you don't need more teaching to impact your heart. Those things change behavior. What changes the heart, which changes lives, are not just written words, but something much more powerful. What the Bible called, what the Bible called, what Jesus called, living words. You see, Jesus picks this point up so powerfully, literally takes what Solomon says here, says to his son about these words being alive, Jesus confronts the Pharisees again one day about all of their knowledge and memorization of the scriptures. Remember, right? They were so good religiously, they could just, they, they knew the Bible inside and outside, they memorized the whole things, but their hearts were so dark, so wicked. I love how the message translation says the problem. He goes, you know, he goes, Jesus says, you have your heads in your Bibles constantly because you think you'll find eternal life there. But you miss the forest for the trees. These scriptures that you're reading are all about me. And here I am standing right before you, and you aren't willing to receive me from me the life you say you want. The single greatest way to guard your heart is to not fix the old one, but to get a new one. The one that Jesus longs so much to give you that he died for you in your place. This is how the prophets saw the future when the law wouldn't be written out to be memorized, but it would be written and living within God's people. 
The life that you want flows from the new heart that you've been given. And Jesus says to you and I, I'm right here. Take me. Choose me. These words, my word, are, my words are living. I will come in and give you a new heart. I will guide you. Come and get from me the heart that you need and the life that you want. And then Jesus says, and guard it and guard it like crazy. Let's close this song.